Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple." Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jeroboam II was the king of Israel. That was the northern of the two kingdoms of Israel for 41 years during the first half of the 8th century BC. And in 2 Kings 14, it says he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. He was the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. And Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, identifies um, Jonah as the son of Amittai. So it seems fairly likely that these are the same uh, people. According to uh, the first couple of verses, God's word comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh and preach against the city. Um, to understand what that meant for Jonah, it might also help you to know that around that same time, the prophet Amos was crying out against the sins of the people of Israel and, and was saying that God was going to raise up an enemy who was going to come uh, and march against them. And that enemy was Assyria. And the great city of Assyria was Nineveh. So while <coughs> one is saying, uh, watch out, they, they're coming to get us, the other is being told, go and get them. It's kind of like God saying to us, go to Moscow and preach against the evil in Russia. Or, or go to Syria and preach against President Assad. That, that's kind of what we're talking about. So, as we've heard, uh, he didn't go. He actually went uh, in the opposite direction, probably towards Spain. People think that's where Tarshish was and there was a great storm and the, the crew began to pray to their own gods and nothing happened. Um, so they woke Jonah who was sleeping uh, and uh, they asked him what was going on and, and he admitted that he was running away uh, from God. But he actually says there, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So why on earth were you trying to run away? Do you know, how do you get away from God who made everything? He probably got a clue as to where you are. So when they asked, well, what can we do? He said, toss me overboard and, and you'll be okay and um, you, you'll be saved. 
And so that's what they did. Um, and then they uh, made sacrifice and began to worship uh, this God that uh, Jonah had spoken of. But there's a bit of a puzzle there, and, and, and I often kind of wondered, why, why was Jonah so ready to say, toss me over and kill me? Do you know, that, that's, that's a, a real issue. And why for the sake of, you know, however many um, sailors whom he would consider pagan that were on this boat? Because w- within a few weeks, he gets really angry that God saved 120,000 of them. So, so for, I don't really get what's going on there. Maybe it's that he was full of remorse and shame. He realized that he had put them in danger by running away. Maybe uh, he, he realizes how stupid it was to try and get away from God and God's tracked him down, as it were, and, and he's put these folks in danger. And so maybe he simply feels guilty and has decided, well, okay, that God's going to kill me, so uh, that, that's fine. Or, or maybe he's just decided that dying is better than going to Nineveh. Whatever, we don't know, but they threw him over. And the storm stops, and Jonah sinks into the water. And the first thing that happens is not the appearance of a great fish. The first thing that happens is he prays. And and before the fish comes the cry of distress. Even though he knew he was guilty, even though he knew that he deserved death, even though he had surrendered his life to the justice of God, yet in that moment when death was imminent, he remembered that God was merciful. And he called out. Later on in in chapter 4, verse 2, he says that that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he cries out to God for mercy. And chapter 2, as we've heard, is what Jonah prayed while still inside uh, the fish, at least while he was conscious inside uh, the fish. Now, you may be sitting there saying to yourself, "Um, is this a true story or not? Maybe you're not, but you probably should ask that question at least at some point. And, you know, that there's all sorts of ideas about that. I want to say that I think it is true, partly because we've said Jonah was a prophet, a known prophet in the land at that time, but also because Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, says that Jonah was an example of resurrection. He's an example of what Jesus is going to do. And so if Jesus is saying, this guy, um, this story was, was right and is good, and, and I'm, I'm going to use that as an example, I think um, I want to say, for me at least, I'm happy to say uh, I'm taking it as an example and, and, and that it was true. I don't understand it, don't get me wrong, but I think if, if God can make a donkey speak, <laughs> you know, if God can create everything, God can keep Jonah in a fish. So, he's at least briefly conscious inside the fish, long enough to realize that God had saved him from drowning in the sea. And during that period or periods of consciousness, he he prays. If you take the prayer out of context, it looks like a pretty good prayer. And it looks like a good prayer because his prayer was answered. He was saved. Woohoo! So it's got to be a good prayer because it was answered. And loads of people 
think this is a really, truly wonderful prayer. But I think that's because they're taking it out of context. They're either reading it just as a piece on its own without reference either side, or because they've read ahead, they know the end of the story, and and they've worked back from that. But that's not how the story is meant to be read. It's meant to be read through. So we want to let the story of Jonah tell us what he's trying to say and what we're meant to learn uh, from it. To find that explanation, I want to look at it in its context. Generally, Jonah is thought to be a book about how Jonah went on a mission trip. Um, And so should we. I mean, I've heard people preaching it as that. You know, Jonah was called to go, and we are all called to go. Therefore, let's not follow Jonah's example, but let's do what we're meant to do in the first place, and that saves us all a load of hassle. But but it's all about going uh, and saving people. And, And clearly, there's an element of that in the story, but that's not, I think, the main point of the story. And it's not really how we understand mission uh, today either. Chapter 1 actually brings up quite a lot of questions about Jonah's character and conduct. We know that he was uh, an established prophet. Uh, it was at that time a really good time, a prosperous time for, uh, for Israel and for the people. The only problem, as I said, was that you know, the enemy was coming because God was going to judge them. Um, because in their prosperity, they were ignoring him. Nineveh, uh, we are told, is a wicked city, and the people were wicked, and God asked Jonah to go and preach against it. Now, you see, in the history of Israel, that would have been a great thing for a prophet to be able to do, because in the history of Israel, when God says there's a city or a people that are wicked, he tends to destroy them. So you would have imagined that go to Nineveh and preach against it, Jonah would be, oh, yes, I'll get our enemies, let's go, God's going to destroy them. Oh, why does he not do that? That's the first kind of unanswered question of today. Why would he not want to preach fire and brimstone to Nineveh, the very people that he uh, despised, instead run off in the opposite direction? Well, we know that he did that, and God didn't take his disobedience uh, that well, so he sent the storm and sunk the ship. And Jonah was asleep while the sailors were praying. And then we see that Jonah said he was willing to die. So they throw him overboard, certain that he would die. But he didn't get his wish because he was swallowed by the fish and left in that fish for three days and three nights. But the thing that we have in this story is the information that Jonah didn't have. We know the end of the story. We know that he survived. We know that he went on to do what God uh, asked him to do reluctantly, Um, And with much weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, um, as is so often the way we do it. But but we know that. But he didn't know that. So as he's in the water and he's calling out to God because he's drowning, he doesn't know that the fish is coming and he doesn't know that he's going to be vomited up on the beach. So Jonah 2.1 says, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the fish's belly. Find ourselves with Jonah in the belly of the fish praying to God. I mean, imagine, if you, if you uh, open some plastic-wrapped uh, fish and you have it for your tea and you leave the wrapper in the bin for a day or two, it's pretty smelly. Eh? Imagine what it's like to be in the belly of the, the fish. I mean, it must have been disgusting. And there he is. 
chapter 1, we saw that the sailors prayed to their own gods, and Jonah remained silent. He didn't want to pray because he, he knew that he was being disobedient to God. And I suspect that if you are like me, you will have found times when praying was the last thing you wanted to do because you know that you were being disobedient to God. It's hard enough to develop a prayer life, but disobedience can really hinder that life with God. Anyway, Jonah turns to God in prayer. And maybe we think he's going to repent of his ways and, and say sorry about what he's done. Verse 2, he says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Seems like a good start. Do you know, it's a, it's a good way. We're, we're, we're gently easing into saying sorry. It's always good to start a prayer with adoration of God and thanksgiving for what he's done. And here he is praising God for saving his life and keeping him from dying. And from the second part of verse 2, it seems that for a while, Jonah actually thought that he had died. That's the reference to Sheol. That's the Hebrew way of referring to the place of the dead. He's saying, I was was dead and you rescued me. But actually we saw in chapter 1 that Jonah had wanted to die. He he seemed to be quite happy to die. And yet in chapter 2, he's anxious and distressed about facing death. I don't think that's that uncommon. When he was thrown into the sea and realized that he might actually die while he was living in rebellion to God, he then wasn't so keen to actually die. He had thought that he might face divine judgment and that was better than going to do what God had asked him to do. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep in the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. And the waves passed over. He expands on the, the first verse and he tells what happened to him. He was thrown into the sea. He was about to drown. Um, but he doesn't place the blame on the sailors. He says it was God who hurled him into the sea. The sailors might physically have done it, but it was God's hand on him behind their actions. In verse 4, he says, I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. To be in the sight of God really means to be in God's favor and to have the favor of God on our lives. But he realized that he had broken his relationship with God. He had lost God's favor. Nevertheless, Jonah says, I'm crying out to you because you're the only one to whom I can go. But when he says that he'll look to the temple... What he's meaning is that he would go to pray. He would pray to God. We see later on he talks about making sacrifice. You make sacrifice at the the temple. Verse 5, the waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Basically, Jonah was on the verge of death. He was on the very threshold of dying. And he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars, it barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought me and my life up from the pit. And here's the reason that he's praying. Jonah is thankful that he didn't die. And that's a good thing to be thankful for, obviously. Uh, but, but maybe now that his life has been spared, he'll be willing to do what God wants and to go and to preach against Nineveh. Maybe now 
he will pray for forgiveness and confess his wrongdoing. Well, we get to verse 7. And that says, hopefully, oh, right, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. Just when we thought he was going to repent and say, sorry, finally, and to praise God for doing something wonderful, he continues to focus on himself. It seems that he thinks that the only reason that God spared his life is because he prayed. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Oh, I mean, I wonderful. We often hear about the power of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer and how prayer accomplishes a lot. And of course it does. We do pray and we look for answers to prayer. We believe that God hears our prayer and he responds to us. The book of James says that the prayer of righteous people is powerful and effective. But we also have to remember that it's not the prayer that's powerful. It's not the prayer that does the work. Prayer is not a magic spell that we just trot out and expect God to, to act and to respond and do what we want. Prayer doesn't do anything in itself. It's God who answers prayer. It's God who is powerful. It's God who provides and protects. It's God who acts. And Jonah's focusing here on himself and his prayer and his ability to get the right words rather than on God and what God wants. Well, there's two verses left, so maybe, just maybe, he will change his focus from himself to God. Verse 8 says, those who regard worthless idols forsake God's love for them. You see what he's doing here? There's been mention of, of idols before uh, in the previous chapter. When Jonah was on the boat, the sailors uh, were, were praying in the middle of the storm and they had done whatever they could to try and save the boat. They were praying to, to their own gods and calling out to them for help. But Jonah is so self-righteous that he sits on judgment upon those very sailors. He's basically saying those sailors were so stupid that they worship and they cling to worthless idols that cannot save them. I told them about you, God, and they prayed to you, but you and I both know that, well, they're just going to go back to their old ways. They'll never learn. He talks about those idol worshippers forfeiting the grace that could be theirs, and yet, what does he know about grace? God's keeping them alive when he should be dead. God's been more gracious to him than he ever deserved. And he still cannot be gracious to other people. And that's partly because as an Israelite, he sees himself as superior to what he considers idolatrous Gentile heathens. But is that really the story? You see, the sailors prayed when he didn't. The sailors were eager to uncover what was wrong and what they could do to fix it when he wasn't. The sailors wanted to practice their faith when Jonah didn't. The sailors had compassion on Jonah and when Jonah would show no compassion to them. By every standard, the Gentile sailors proved to be better than Jonah. And yet, here he is, unabashedly saying to God that somehow he was superior to them. Not only does he feel disdain for them, but it seems that he might also be looking forward to what God has expected him to do, to go and to preach to the people of Nineveh. It's as if he's saying to God, God, look, they're idolaters as well. They might turn and they might not, but even if they do well, they'll just go back to their old way. You know, they, they don't want you. They don't want anything to do with you. They don't know you. They're, they'll do what they always do. They're, they're hopeless. 
And, and the challenge for us is to ask if there are people that we feel are hopeless, if there are people that we think are a lost cause, if there are people that we don't pray for because we think they don't care, they're not interested, they don't know about God, they don't care about God, even if we spoke to them, they wouldn't want to know. Are there people that we just have stopped praying for? Are there people that we think God will never be able to get through to? Verse 9. He says, The shouts of praise I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah continues to condemn the sailors. Remember, they sacrificed to God, and they also made vows to God. And Jonah's hinting here that their sacrifices were worthless because they didn't know him very well. He's also hinting that although they made vows, they're not going to keep them. But he's going to keep his. This time, at least. Do you know? Because the other promises, well, do you know, that doesn't really matter. He's changed. Jonah's changed. But what he says is actually in that little bit there, I will sacrifice to you. We see sacrifices were made not in Nineveh, but in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to sacrifice everything. I'll make all the sacrifices you want, Lord. In Jerusalem. Apparently, he either didn't know or remember uh, Scripture as well as he, he thought he did. First Samuel fifteen twenty two says, Has the Lord uh, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Jonah's saying, no, 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 no. I still don't actually want to obey you. I still don't actually want to do what you're asking me to do. But, but I'll go and sacrifice to you. I'll go and praise you in the temple. In the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee's at the front. And, and he's, uh, he, he's praying to God in, in front of all the people. And he says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like this, this tax collector. Because he's just awful. Not all tax collectors are, you understand. I want to make that quite clear. But, but in the story, this tax collector is awful. I don't want to be like him. Thank you that I'm not like him. And the tax collector could only say, God, forgive me. And, and Jesus said, which one of them had their prayer heard? Jonah is like the Pharisee in the story. He is so self-righteous that he doesn't actually see even now that he has done anything wrong. His prayer focuses completely on himself. If you compare it with others, for example, in Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 9, his prayer is full of confession and repentance and thanksgiving for God and focusing on what God has done. There is a lot of focusing on himself and his country, but it's always in reference to their sin, not to their goodness. 
And he puts himself in step with the worst of them. Daniel, the righteous man of God, puts himself in the same category as all of Israel who were worshipping false idols. Daniel's prayer is a good example of how we should pray. But Jonah has been thinking of himself all the way through. And now God has saved him from dying and still all he thinks about is himself. It's very easy to judge Jonah. But what is our prayer life like? What or who do we focus on? Do we start with praise or do we jump right into what we want and what we need and we want it now? Prayer is, of course, a difficult thing. It's also an easy thing. <laughs> There's no set formula. We, can, we speak from our heart and we speak to God as we speak to other people. But getting it right can be hard. All of us need to improve in it. And we can learn better how to pray by studying some of the prayers in the Bible. And we can learn from prayers like this, where Jonah shows us just how not to do it. Don't pray focused on ourselves and our goals and our needs, but we should pray focused on God and what he wants for our lives. We should not make promises to God in order to get what we want. Don't know if you've ever done that. You know, you get to the exam and you haven't studied and you say, God, just help me with this and I'll do, you know, um, maybe that's just me. We're not to be too quick to judge people because as we judge people, so we are judged. And then the last verse of this is um, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. The fish vomited. What, what a picture that is. I mean, you know what it's like when you vomit? It's really unpleasant, do you know? And yet that's what, that's what happened here. But, but actually, there, there's, also, there's a verse in Revelation chapter 3 when, when uh, the Spirit is speaking to the church. and He says, so then, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. God's been trying to teach Jonah something and Jonah's just not getting it. And so there's an, a, a yet another question for us. The first answered question was, why didn't he want to go and preach the fire and brimstone to Nineveh? The second was kind of, well, why would he rather die than do what God wants? And the third, I suppose, is this. What is God trying to teach Jonah? We'll come back to them in the next couple of weeks. So what do we learn from that prayer today? Well, the first thing is, I think it speaks to, of, to us and warns us about spiritual superficiality or shallowness. That has lots of telltale symptoms that relies on the wrong things, that thinks more about background or ancestry, denomination, position in the church. You know, he's an elder, you know. Um, the knowledge, the amount of time you give or the money you donate, or that it's simply that maybe you go to church. It's heavy on form, it mimics rather than is genuine. It prays only in really poor circumstances. It's self-focused rather than God-focused. It's insensitive to the needs and the concerns of other people and yet lets everyone know of its own needs. So we've got to be aware of spiritual shallowness. And secondly, we're reminded that God's method of saving us is not always the method that we would have chosen. Could you imagine... Um, that Jonah might have preferred the dramatic 
search and rescue operation. You know, the helicopter, the skin divers, the, the, you know, the fast boat zooming out there to try and rescue him. And then, you know, the wee slot on, on breakfast television to tell his story. That kind of thing. Do you know? But that's obviously not what God chose to do. And neither does God choose to save people in the manner that, that we might have wanted. Believing in Christ alone, that he guarantees eternal life simply because he chooses to, is not what people would have chosen. In fact, many still try to add things to the good news of the gospel. Nevertheless, that is what God chose to provide for our salvation. The cross is not what people would choose, but the cross is what God chose. It's the only way. It's God's way. And so may God keep us from the shallow spirituality and personal pride of Jonah's prayer and help us to trust only in Jesus. Amen.